once a spy rode boldly into Shwari town seeking someone to question at length to see how her people fared in Shwari's hand and to judge for himself Shwari's strength Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at three stories in The Future is Female, 25 classic science fiction stories by women um, from pulp, pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin. That's the full title. I should also note that these are American writers, all of them. This is actually published by the Library of America. It's one of their special publications. Uh, I talked about the first five uh, stories in the previous episode and, and in this section. I'll just take up the next uh, 100 pages or so uh, and look at three, three, three tales. Um, now, one of these I managed to find on audiobook, Contagion by, um, by Catherine McLean. Was, there was a Libra Rocks recording of that one. And uh, yeah, uh, so that's available. The other two. I couldn't find, I think the Wilmer H. Shurist in Hiding is an audiobook somewhere, but it might be in copyright. Uh, that is, I think I said something wrong in the last episode. I said that only a mother may have been the only one published in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, but no, In Hiding was as well. There, maybe there's another I missed, but um, I, when I, when I started reading the story, I remembered it, um, but I didn't remember from where, and, and it's in the novella volume of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Um, uh, you probably maybe have heard of that story from the Children of Adam um, stories. I, I think you know the way like Asimov combined the robot stories and the Foundation stories into like a novel. Uh, at one point, I think that's what happened with the Children of Adam stories by by Wilmer H. Shuras. Um But anyways, um, just three uh, stories in this episode, and it won't take that long. These these um, these stories are fairly good. They're, they're all worth reading. They're fairly concise. I think the most interesting from a gender perspective is, is Contagion, certainly. Um, but but all, th all three are, are, are good stories. Um, so let's just jump into it uh, and, and see what we find here. Again, I just want to praise Lisa Yazik's selection of stories here. Her introductory essay to this volume is very good. I discussed that a little bit in the last episode. I really, really do think that this is uh, worth worth picking up if, if you want a nice science fiction anthology. But if anyone out there knows where that Woman of a Wonder, I think there's actually two volumes of the Woman of Wonder anthology um, published years ago, I think back in the 80s or 90s, uh, that had a very pulpish cover. Um, it was a fairly large book, and it had a lot of stories. And that was all by women, too. So this isn't a new idea to, to collect the stories by women, but, um, you know, but never in such a prestigious uh, publisher like the Library of America. They, they did a collection of science fiction. They've been doing science fiction for a while, and they've released the works of Ursula K. Le Guin, but this is, um, this is a nice collection that they put together here. <clears throat> yeah, I remember that Women of Wonder. It's a little bit more pulpy in, in its stories, too. Uh, these are all, of course, all these were published in the pulps, but, you know, they're, they're things that have... Uh, you know, stood the test of time maybe a little bit more than some of the stuff in that other collection. I'm not sure, um, but it's been so long since I read it. I'd, I'd like to get my hands on it again. I, I don't know what happened to my copy. I, 
think must have got lost in the shuffle. I lost one box of books years ago, and it had a lot of cool stuff in there. Every once in a while, I'm looking for a book, and I can't find it. And I, I, I imagine it must have been in that box, that, that um, fabled lost box. Somewhere in America, those books are. Anyways, enough about that. Um, the first story we have, as, as I said, is William H. Schurz in hiding. It's about 40 pages. I think, yeah, 45 or so. Um, the audio book for this would be about an hour um, based on the, how many words are on this page. That, that makes it a bit smaller. In, in the normal Library of, American, Library of America books, uh, you know, 25 pages is about equivalent to an hour uh, in audiobooks. Um, you know, it depends on the reader. It depends, you know, on, on variety of factors. But it's about 25 pages for an hour. Here it's about uh, 45, 40, 45 for an hour or so. You know, you can get a sense of of how much shorter um, this collection is than the standard Library of America publication. Uh, yeah, like they could have crammed a lot more. They could have crammed in, uh, you know, fifty or seventy stories by by women and, and did it as a regular publication. Uh, it would have been one volume in the normal Library of America series. I don't know why they chose to do it this way. Um, it's it's an internal decision they make. Anyways, uh, so yeah, these are the children. This is one of the Children of Adam stories. Uh, it was published initially in Astounding. Um, so it's an astounding mutant story. So um, I've been thinking a little bit about this, largely in relation to Philip Dick, but uh, Philip Dick being more of the response to the, as the mutants are being portrayed in Astounding science fiction. So in Astounding, of course, you have um, Chandler editing that and his big thing is that really the post-humans are going to be supermen who are, are generally good that are going to be super creative uh, have all the and really kind of push the human race forward in new directions right um dick's mutants you know they kind of come from the same thing like they'll they'll be like an atomic blast you know or some something else. It's not always really explained, but there'll be something that causes the post-humans. But the real difference is in Dick's, Philip Dick's presentation of the post-humans, of the mutants, they're often presented as dangerous. Sometimes they're presented just as normal people with normal concerns, very petty. They fight with their wives. They use their powers to expand their careers. Um, sometimes there are serious threats, like in The Golden Man. That's maybe the best example of the post-human being presented. Actually, both as a like an intellectual throwback in a lot of ways, but capable of really replacing us very easily. And in that, that case, it was the guy who was basically kind of an idiot, you know, but he had this power of attracting women. He was basically like a, a sex magnet for women, which implied that, you know, if this type of mutant could be in the general population, you know, they quickly breed out uh, normal humans just through uh, sexual prowess and their, their ability to attract women. There's other things in that story as well, like the police can't catch him and stuff um, that make him also a threat. Um, well, William H. Shuras, who is this person? Well, Wilmar does sound like a, a voice name to me, but uh, this isn't a this isn't a, a, a pen name. Uh, born Wilmar Alberta House in Boston, her father was a machinist, and both her parents Massachusetts natives. These are um, Yazix notes, by the way. She married. 1927, at the age of 18, after a year in Boston University, and moved in with her husband, a newly graduated chemical engineer, to the suburbs of L.A. 
There and in Oakland, California, beginning in the early 1940s, they raised three girls and two boys. In 1946, she published an autobiographical account of her conversion to Catholicism, Slow Dawning, under the pseudonym Jane, Jane Howes, as a reviewer for New Catholic World and other magazines, and as a translator of Catholic theology and philosophy. Going back to school, she learned, earned her bachelor's degree and master's degree in history at Berkeley. She's principally remembered for her first published story, The Wiley Anthologized In Hiding, and for the Children of Adam series collected in the novel Children of Adam in 1953. All right, so uh, Yazek says here that she's often identified by sci-fi fans and critics as important pre precursors to Marvel's X-Men series, right? So that, I mean, I guess X-Men is like the model of the essentially uh, constructive mutants, good, you know, mutants that really are kind of pushing humanity to the next stage. The X-Men does have a little bit of pessimism in that there's going to be conflicts among them, and there are some X-Men who, or some mutants who, who do want to replace humanity um, and the more Philip Dick um, model. But largely, they're, they're presented as good, right? And, and, and that's what we see here. Um, the story basically is is around, revolved around two two characters um timothy paul and peter wells timothy paul is a is a, is a boy 13 years old or so peter wells is a psychiatrist and, and what happened was at, at at some point like the teachers thought something was off about timothy so sent him to the shrink and the vast majority of the novel is just the conversations between these two people and as a result of these conversations Peter Wells realizes that Timothy Paul is, is basically a genius at first. It's, it's clear he's a genius. He does other tests on him. He does like the Roshark test and, and other things. But uh, Timothy is always kind of one step ahead of him in the conversations. And it's revealed he's just brilliant. He studies at a much more advanced rate than the other students. Um, now, why is it called In Hiding? Well, the reason the story is called In Hiding is be simply because Timothy is hiding his abilities from the rest of the world, and this is something his grandparents encourage him to do, basically as kind of a protection, right? And there's an implication that there's many other of these, essentially what are proved later on to be post-humans in the similar situation of, of hiding. Now, in his free time, Timothy does things like, uh, you know, genetic experiments on cats. That's um, one of his hobbies, and it's something he becomes quite good at. All right, well, this story sort of reminded me of More Than Human by Theodore Sturgeon, um, but that was written later. This is, or so this is about five years before Theodore Sturgeon's um, book. Uh, now, that novella that that's based off is also in the Sci-Fi Hall of Fame, Baby is Three, is it's is it called. And um, that's, that's also about post-humans. And in that case, it's like... Um, Basically, humans are evolving into gestalt consciousnesses, and but what reminds what reminds me of it is there's the this kind of uh, the post-human in the in the doctor's office kind of mo uh, motif which we see here. At least that's what I remember. But uh, check out that story if you want. I'll, I'll look at those <clears throat> novels in this series at some point uh, after I'm done with uh, this. 20 Century Girls series. Maybe I'll go back and look at those nine, nine um, books, uh, science fiction books. It's, it's a two-volume series by the Life of America, and they're all from the, like the 50s. <clears throat> and it's a really good series. And, um, 
But yeah, maybe maybe do it later. But anyways, at, back to the story. So as this doctor, Wells, learned more, he, he first basically comes to the conclusion that this guy is a prodigy, a genius, and he starts doing these tests. Um, so, quote, Timothy Paul went swiftly through the whole range of superior adult tests without any failure of any sort. There were no tests yet devised that could measure his intelligence. While he was still writing his age with one figure, Timothy Paul had faced alone and solved alone problems that would have baffled the average adult. He had adjusted to the hardest task of all, that of appearing to be a fairly normal B average small boy. And it must be that there was more to find out about him. What did he write? What did he do besides read and write, learn carpentry and breed cats, and magnificently fool the whole world? When Peter Wells had read some of Tim's writings, he was surprised to find that the stories the boy had written were vividly human, the product of close observation of human nature. The articles, on the other hand, were closely reasoned and showed thorough study and research. Apparently, Tim read every word of several newspapers and a score or more of periodicals. Now, this little this kid is even like publishing under a different name and stuff, so he's, he's accomplished a whole lot um, just due to his super intelligence, right? Now, what we learn at the end of the story in the last few pages, and this is all fleshed out much more in the Children of Adam novel, apparently, um, is that really humanity is, is split at this point, and there is more of these kids, and it's basically the product of, of the nuclear testing, right? So this, this novel kind of is part of the response to the bomb. Uh, if you want to know more about that, by the way, there's a wonderful, wonderful book called By the Bomb's Early Light by um, Paul Boyer, a historian, and it's fairly easy to read. It's, it's, a, it's an academic history, but it's fairly approachable. And it's a cultural history of America uh, after the bomb, right? So it looks at questions like, certainly science fiction has a lot in there, uh, how it affected consumer culture, how it affected uh, political culture to a certain degree, some in there about the anti-nuclear movement, but it's a really, really wonderful book. Um, and uh, one of my favorite books about the nuclear age in America. So, um, you know, you know, it's I'm sure books like this were mentioned in in Boyer's book. I'm not sure, though, um, but that's what happened. So um, here we have the, the revelation at, at, the, at the end of the at the end of the story. Uh, this is who's he get this from? He's talking. He Wells has to dig around and he finally find find someone who knows the story. And this is what he says. Timothy had never been told. After all, he must grow up in this world. And how dreadful this world has changed in the past 30 years. Dr. Wells, but you do not remember the day before 1945. You have heard, no doubt, of the terrible explosion on the atomic plant when they were trying to make a new type of bomb. At the time, none of the workers seemed to be injured. They believed the protection was adequate. But two years later, they're all dead or dying. Tim was born just 14 months after the explosion, 14 months to the day. Everyone still thought that no harm had been done, but the radiation had some effect, which was very slow. I do not understand such things. Edwin died, and then Emily came home to us with the boy. In a few months, she too was gone. Oh, but we have not sorrow as those who have no hope. It's hard to have lost, to have lost her, Dr. Wells, but Mr. Davis and I have reached the time when we can look forward to seeing her again. Our hope is to live until Tim is old enough to fend for himself. End quote. So that's the, the, the revelation at the end that Wells finally gets the full story of what happened to this family, why he's living with his grandparents, and, and, and the, you know, there's more of them. And that's the big revelation at the end, that, that really humanity is, there is a true post-human population now. 
Now, as for gender issues, I there's not so much in this story. Um, the focus on a child rather than an adult um, is is interesting. Um, maybe some other male writers would have focused on adults. I know that's children are there are actually a lot of great um, golden era science fiction stories about children. So I'm not suggesting that children are, are neglected. Phil Dick wrote a lot about children. Uh, Mimsy with the Borough Groves is a wonderful story, really centering on children. Um, I think even that uh, more than human is, is you know, focuses on them as, as kids. I, I wonder how much that story was influenced by this, by this story and the children of Adam stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's a little more trippy because you're dealing with people evolving into gestalt consciousnesses, not just super intelligent post-humans. Um, there's a lot of focus on parenting here as well. Um, but other than that, this isn't really a gender story. Like I, the stuff we looked at in the last episode, I think the vast majority of those stories, or the themes in those stories are gendered. Um, there's only five, so I shouldn't say vast majority, but all of them, all of those stories in that, those first five that I looked at, all of them are about gender in some way. Most of this story is just two people, uh, two men, a psychiatrist and, and a boy, but he basically is a man for all intents and purposes, intellectually and, and, and in terms of his capacity. Um, but like um, only a mother, it's it's a response to the nuclear age. It's a it's it's a mutant that derived from uh, the nuclear age, and so in that sense, these, those stories have something in common. And the yeah, it's it's a good story though. I, I think it's um, worth checking out. Um, so the next story in this collection is Catherine McLean's Contagion. Contagion was published in Galaxy in 1950. Um, it says here, later collected in The Trouble With You Earth People in 1979. So I guess, uh, is that a collection of short stories or one of those um, synthesized novels that science fiction writers did, uh, did so much? Uh, anyways. Contagion. Um, so this story is a bit about the frontier, uh, and it deals, it does deal with with gender issues more than the other two stories we're going to look at in this in this um, episode. Um, but it's much more about the frontier and the and colonization and what it takes to to colonize a place. And I, I think the heart of it is you have to become what you settle like there's a limit to how much we can bring ourselves into this this frontier right um if you just read uh the recent stanley uh, kim stanley robinson novel was it aurora i don't think it's his newest i think he's written a couple since but it's the most recent one i read um aurora which is about uh, a generation ship that goes to another planet and when it gets there it's it's revealed well they find out that essentially they're back home. They were Nazis, you know, expansionists, and that the whole generation ship was part of a, a basically a, a, a an expansionist program, not the typical kind of benevolent space colonization we see a lot in in in, in science fiction. It's, it's the whole colonization effort is is kind of deconstructed in that. But more than that, they find out they can't really live on this other planet because they're instantly exposed to these foreign diseases, right? And, you know, now I don't know, I, I'd have, yeah, are there people studying this? I'm sure there are, you know, but viruses 
at least are tied in some way to our DNA, right? That's why we can't catch cowpox unless it mutates, right? That's, um, that's where smallpox came from. It was a mutation to adapt to our cells, right? Now, bacteria, I suppose they can infect um, things, but we don't know what extraterrestrial bacteria would look like or extraterrestrial viruses uh, or whether they could infect us or not, right? I'm sure it's something people think about and study and science fiction writers certainly have thought about these things. Um, now, this is, I mean, really the heart of this story is saying like, you sort of have to become the, the frontier. You have to adapt to, her, to your new, new circumstances, right? You, that you can't impose your will and your subjectivity on these foreign worlds. I think that's ultimately the lesson of this story. Um, but let's talk about what the plot here briefly. It's pretty simple. Um, this ship arrives. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, a ship settlers. They're going to, you know, they're on a ship called the Explorer and they're actually seeking out this planet. It's Minos is the planet they go to. There's both men and women there. They are, they're, they're couples. Um, so they, they are kind of planning to set, establish families and get set up there. Um, Right away, we're told that this world could be dangerous because of diseases. Quote, but the likeness to Earth was danger, and the cool wind might be death. For if animals were like Earth animals, their diseases might be like Earth diseases, alike enough to be contagious, different enough to be impossible to treat. There was warning enough in the past. Colonies had vanished and traveled spaceways, drifted with the corpses of ships which have touched on some plague planet. Um, so because of this, and they know this, they take all the precautions. So they go on their space shoes, they're testing, and all that. Now, finally, they meet like a guy who kind of shows up to be a, a caveman. He suggested he's, he's quite good looking. Um, but, quote, this one looked like a man, a magnificently muscled, leanly graceful, human-like animal. Even in his callous bare feet, it was a head taller than any of them. Red-haired, hawk-faced, and darkly tanned, he stood breathing deeply, looking at them without expression. At its side hung a sheath knight, and a crossbow was slung across one wide shoulder. So this is the, the guy that they meet, a, a guy who's essentially human, right? And his name is Patrick Mead. And they're like, well, now we have, you know, there were colonists here before. So that's the good news is we have a history now to study this disease question. Were there diseases here? How do they treat them? How do they survive? Does this Patrick Mead have these antibodies or whatever knowledge, you know, to prevent these diseases? So um, he, they do that. They begin to test him. Right now, he tells the story that that first generation of colonists that arrived, they died of something called like a melting sickness, and a significant number of them died. But but he, you know, he's a descendant of the survivors. So, um, anyways, a lot of fun in this story is is just how hot this pet meat is, and kind of makes you know it's it, it is kind of a twist on the archetype of the of the beautiful like space woman you know that that the, the male hero explorer finds and then kind of will seduce or or marry or whatever princess of mars kind of thing um but here now it's pat mead is the is the is the the beautiful man that that all the women have the hops for and all these all these women they're all couples right so there's you know a little bit of fun is being had with that right and um, what happens is Pat Mead eventually does infect. Uh, he's carrying this melting disease and he infects the men on the crew, but only the men. Only the men get infected, the women don't. Um, and the women, especially this June Walton, I think her name is, she's the, 
yeah, June Walton is the main character. She's the she's a, a well, several of these people are doctors. I think this is like the medical team. Um, the characters are mostly on this medical team, but the men have to be put in like some kind of suspension while the women figure it out. And eventually they're able to use Pat's antibodies or whatever to cure the men. But with that, because of that, the, the, the men basically are changed into Pat Mead, right? It's the only way they can survive the melting disease essentially to become Pat Mead. And now you have this issue where all these, these women's partners are, are look the same, right? Now, they're all kind of upgraded in terms of their physical features and looks. So that's the good news. The bad news is they all look alike. But it's not a big deal because it's just like with, I guess, identical twins, right? Parents have no problem telling apart identical twins, even if you know people who aren't related to them might, even at young ages. So it's about personality, right? It's about who they are um, deep down, right? And now... Then that's basically the story, but it kind of ends with a bit of a joke where now we get the beautiful uh, woman who shows up, Patrick Mead, or no, sorry, not Patrick, like Patricia Mead, I think her name is. And she's the woman now, of course, she's going to infect the women, right? So this disease is, is sort of gendered or has this gendered components. We don't get her full, full description like we do with, with Pat Mead, but, um, you know, but the other quote, the other, this is the woman. The other was a handsome, leggy, red-haired girl who could have been his sister. So now it's clear that this Patricia Mead is going to infect the women. And then the choice becomes like, do we allow ourselves to get the, be infected, right? Do we, we let Patricia in? The end result is going to be we're going to lose our individuality just like the men do. And it's implied at the end that, yeah, if they're going to live on this planet, they'll eventually have to become... Uh, Patricia Mead, but they're not going to lose their individuality when doing that. So I, I think this story, it's, it's pretty clear cut. Um, I just found out it was actually published in the first uh, edition of Galaxy. I should have looked closer at the, the footnote here because it is here. 1.1, uh, Galaxy 1.1, October 1950. Um, so that's a, that's a notable factoid about this story. Um, I, I think the gender politics of this is kind of interesting in that we have uh, women, you know, as, in a prominent role as scientists and as explorers and as adventurers. And it's, it's not, not, not a big deal is made of it. It's just sort of natural that they would be there. Uh, they have positions of authority. Of course, a woman saves the day, essentially, by figuring out the medicine behind it, uh, fig figuring out how to save the men. So like in that other story you read, Space Episode. Uh, we have a we have a woman saving the men literally, and then I think the the question about uh, having this hot guy come and and make the women on the crew, you know, kind of bothered by that, and and you know, it's and, and how the men who are just normal men, not quite you know, not as tall and beautiful as as Pat Mead, deal with that. Um, now, of course, it gets reversed in the end too, when all the the women are apparently going to become hot. Odd as well, uh, thanks to the melting sickness. But still, really, really great story. A really, really interesting one, and I was certainly very, very glad that I that I read it. Um, so I don't know, not much more to say about it, but a good story. Um, so the last one for today: um, The Inhabited Men, Margaret Saint Clair. This was published in Planet Stories. Uh, September 1951. 
Oh, by the way, I found the, the Women of Wonder uh, anthologies. There's actually two of them, uh, both edited by Pamela Sargent. Um, the first one is The Classic Years, Science Fiction by Women from the 1940s to 1970s. And it does have very much a pulp cover. It's got two uh, space women in uh, totally impractical clothing uh, on the cover. And then the second one is The Contemporary Years. These were both published in the 90s. They're pretty cheap. They're used ones for three bucks. So I should just pick these up again. Uh, there's even older editions. So the one with the pulpy cover is apparently the newer edition. Um, so yeah, worth worth checking out um, as a kind of companion to to this um, this this story, the, these stories. Anyways, Margaret Sinclair, the Inhabited Men. Um, okay, the Inhabited Men. Really, really interesting. Very, very short story. Um, so. We're given, we're told, it's a story of three men who are on the ship, the Ara, right? And they, they end up, they, they, these people end up getting stuck on this planet called Pendraith. Um, and it turns out that they really are going to have to break up and split up and go their own ways to survive because they're not really getting handouts on this planet. They're not getting any charity. And so they're going to have to, to split up if they want to survive, go their own ways. And that's what happens. So then we get the story of first of this guy Norton and he gets a job on a freighter and so he's he's like bunking with the cook on on this freighter and he's superstitious he's described as superstitious and this runs into conflict with the cook that he's bunking with a guy named Gongo who is a native of Pendraith and he has like this idol and that kind of freaks him out and there's there's growing tension between the two of them um, now, one thing we find is Norton's not eating. It suggests he's not eating. He just says, well, I don't really like the food. It doesn't sit well with me, but this sort of offends Gongo. Uh, but really what happens one night is he starts to talk in his sleep. Norton starts to talk in his sleep, and he talks about um, essentially growing. Now, I'm going to spoil the story a little bit. Is essentially th these people in a previous planet, all three of them were infected, and they essentially were becoming a plant. Right, so the, what would a plant dream? And the, the dream of growing and the the, the the essential nature of, of of their essential nature being that to grow. It, it's kind of interesting question, if if plants could dream, what would they dream about? Um, and that's sort of thrown in there. Anyways, Gongo uh, wakes him up first, and Norton just kind of goes back to sleep. But Gongo's freaked out by this talk about growing, and he thinks. Or for whatever reason, because of his culture, whatever, that this guy is a, a devil or a demon and he murders him in his sleep. So Norton dies. So the second story follows this guy, Evans, who, who ends up work, gets a job like on a, on a cruise liner, a galactic cruise liner called the Boutic. Um, it's got four stewardesses. Or is he just as a patient? Uh, no, he, no, he is a steward. He, he's, he, he joins the ship as a steward. Um, and he kind of flirts with, he gets friendly with these stewardesses, and that's kind of a fun little um, aside here. But he, he, St. Clair, he gets right to the point and doesn't dwell on the, the experience on these ships. What happens is the booty essentially explodes in an asteroid belt, uh, and they're forced to basically escape. Like um, Evans and two of these women escape to an asteroid. 
and they have 12 hours of air and they're hoping to escape but you know there's always a good chance that you're not going to make it in that case um, and some time passes and eventually the two women die but Evans realizes that his um, tank is empty but he's not dying and I think he eventually does take off his helmet um, yeah Evans couldn't understand it he thought for a while and then he took off his helmet no rush of air left his suit it was empty he wasn't breathing but he was still alive he sat there for half an hour between the bodies of two women trying to understand it he couldn't make any sense of it finally he unhooked the blaster from his holster the gauge ready to charge so he blew his head off so Evans dies and then we hear the story of Miller Miller uh, also you know he struggled to find a job and he um, though eventually uh, gets on a ship called the Royal Glory no sorry this isn't a ship this is a theater he, he gets a job just in a theater as a bit of a bouncer right to make sure people don't uh, basically theater jump or whatever or watch too many uh, shows uh, in a row so that's his job he's basically a, a, a low-level bouncer so he's working as this bouncer and then there's like a plague on this planet and so part of his job becomes to look at the patron's mouth to make sure they don't have this disease uh, miller feels very healthy though he doesn't feel he's in much risk of getting it um, but his boss quilk is his name his boss uh, looks into his mouth one day and sees these plague spots in his mouth and miller says i don't have it i feel fine and quilk's like no you're fired i can't have you here uh pays him like four days advance to get rid of him um, but they end up having a, a, an argument and a scuffle and Quilk shoots him and he dies. So all three of these people die. Now here's the conclusion. It's, it's less than a page that sums up this story. I'll just read it. Quote, the organisms that have colonized the crew of the Ara died with them naturally. They were able to survive for considerably longer than the men, but the knife wound and the blaster charge disrupted their nice balanced economy beyond repair. What they had done as they grown on the men's mucous membranes and then their body cavities was to convert Norton and Evans and Miller into Wardian cases uh, Tyrannomus, units with chlorophyll and radiant energy. They did not have to be sunlight. Uh, cooperated to turn the carbon dioxide of catabolism into oxygen, complex starches, and growth. After the economy was well established, its hosts, as they knew it, were potentially immortal. They could have gone for years without needing to eat or breathe. But the plants in the Wardian case die when the case is broken, and the tenants of Norton, Evans, and Miller, for all their complex mental organization, were basically plants. They were not in the least resigned to dying, however. For hours they fought against it, screaming to each other and pouring, cursing, praying not to die. In the end, Evans, Miller, and Norton had this in common. Each of them kept on talking for a long time after he was dead. So yeah, this story doesn't have a whole lot of specifically about gender, but it is a very, very fascinating story. Um, there are, of course, other uh, ideas of, of, of plant-based humanoids or what would what would complex uh, sentient plant life look like and, 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 and act like? Of course, you have Zan and, and Farscape is maybe the most uh, well-known example of a, of a sentient plant. Um, this, this, this idea of, uh, it's kind of like actually with Contagion where something infects them and changes their nature of who they are, right? And in Contagion, they become the Medes. And here, they, they essentially become plants, but they still walk around and act as human but you know they don't need oxygen they don't need to eat they're you know and we, we learn a little bit about this infection from each right we learn from the first case that uh, they don't have to eat that he doesn't really eat he's not really hungry to eat we learn in the second case that they don't they don't need air to breathe and then the third case we learn that some of the physical 
dimensions of this infection that, that it looks a bit like the plague, but it's not. It's explicitly told us that this is not the plague that was affecting that planet. So uh, anyways, uh, kind of an interesting story, um, both about the dangers of, of, of frontier colonization of space in terms of, of bio, you know, biology, although, although all three of these people die, it's presented as kind of a good, like a beneficial infection now, uh, a beneficial parasite. Um, and then I think in, in when we think of uh, the solar punk movement, right, I think some solar punk writers have been playing with this idea of, of you know, basically replicating photosynthesis in, in various ways, right? And obviously for energy, right? Solar panels are nice. If we can actually do better at actually replicating photosynthesis, uh, making the artificial trees maybe even more efficient than trees, we can do more to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Of course, but I, I know I've come across this in some uh, solar punk stories, is where literally people you like they use the principle of photosynthesis to avoid having to eat or something. Um, and, and a couple of the stories I read have that dimension. So that's that's it. I, I, I yeah, I, I think these three stories are really solid, and I, I really. Uh, I mean, obviously they're included here because they're good works and, and they're by important writers that are not just throwing in whatever. So, um, you know, Contagion in the first edition of Galaxy. Um, one of these is in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in, in hiding. So it's they're important stories and they are, you know, really a lot of fun, but not so much in this, these three on gender. I mean, there's less I felt that I could talk about gender in these particular stories, but that'll probably change as we go into the next few stories. So um, in the next episode, I'll look at Ararat, Zena Henderson, All Cats Are Gray by Andrew North. He Created Them by Alice Eleanor Jones, Mr. Sackerson's Halt by Mildred Klingerman, All the Colors of the Rainbow by Lay Bracket and Pelt by Carol Urschwiller. So six stories in the next one. So that will be the next hundred pages of this anthology. So again, I recommend this, Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women. And I recommend we all go back and look at Pamela Sargent's Women of Wonder. Um, you know, only three bucks used on Amazon. So I'm gonna probably pick those up as soon as I can. Well, um, yeah, thanks for, for listening and leave your thoughts below. If you read these stories or you came across these, let me, um, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave your comments below. Um, yeah, uh, I'll see you soon with the next few stories in this collection, The Future is Female. Thanks for listening.